Have you ever wondered why something exists rather than nothing? Perhaps you haven't ever wondered that, but you should. You should wonder why there is something rather than nothing. You should wonder why there is a you and what your purpose is. If you adopt a secular materialist worldview, then there is no meaning or purpose to the world. The world that we live in is one big cosmic coincidence. Never mind the question of how that universe came into being, like where did that matter come from for a big bang to happen, or the question of where gravity came from to act upon that matter to produce that big bang. Never mind the chances of what this completely random, unguided accident would yield a incredibly fine-tuned environment for the flourishing of life. Uh, never mind that even if you have those natural resources to work with, which is not accounted for in a secular worldview, and even if you have the precise conditions to work within, which is not reasonably accounted for, then you still need life itself. You have to get from non-living matter to life and living organisms. But let's just assume that somehow, some way, you get the perfect chemicals in the perfect pond and you get the perfect strike of lightning to kickstart the process of life. And then after billions of years of unguided evolutionary processes, you eventually get a human. Let's just assume all of that. Now, what would be the objective purpose and significance of that human being? What would be the purpose and significance of your life? Well, obviously, if the world exists by nothing but random, unguided chance, then there would be no real objective purpose to anything. And you can pretend and try to create significance and make your life meaningful, but in the final analysis, human life would have no objective significance at all. All ideas of virtue and vice, good and evil, would be rendered absolutely meaningless. It wouldn't really matter if someone spends their whole life helping the poor or exploiting children. In the final accounting, if we came into being by random chance and unguided processes, every human life and every human action is ultimately meaningless because not only is there no purpose, but there is no basis upon, upon which any action could be objectively evaluated. And this isn't me maligning a secular worldview. Pop atheist Richard Dawkins himself says, there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. <laughs> That's the reality of a secular material worldview. But I want to humbly but firmly tell you that they are wrong. You are not just a fizzing bag of chemicals which exists by chance and dumb luck. You are an image bearer of God. And you were created by 
a rational, purposeful God for a reason. And in our text, we see what that purpose is. We see not only why you exist as an individual, but why everything that exists, exists. We see the purpose for all things. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians 1, 15 to 23, and we'll read together. Colossians 1, verse 15 and following. He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Father, we thank you for this glorious word. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Christ revealed in creation, revealed in redemption, uh, that we would see the wonder of our reconciliation to you, uh, a holy and just God, through the perfect work of Christ, your Son. Open our eyes that we might give him the worship that uh, that is his due. In Jesus' name, amen. Previously in Colossians, uh, we saw that our chief aim is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And now we see in our text this morning what God's chief end is in all that he does. The reason for all things. And it is this, that Christ might be preeminent. That Christ might have the first place that he might be glorified in all and through all. And so the outline is simply this. Number one, the preeminence of Christ in creation. And number two, the preeminence of Christ in redemption. And so let's begin with this first point, the preeminence of Christ in creation. Paul begins in verse 15, asserting that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And it's an interesting beginning to this section. I do think Paul's main point is to emphasize Christ's preeminence, his exaltation uh, above creation. And yet, I think Paul chooses these terms very intentionally and even strategically. Because if you know early church history, you know that the first heresy concerning Christ that they battled against was not about whether or not Christ was divine, but whether or not Christ was truly human. 
Gnosticism contended it was just below God, below the infinite eternal God, to actually assume human nature. So some thought that Jesus was just a spirit who kind of uh, came upon or just looked like, actually, looked like a human being. He appeared like a man, but he wasn't actually a man. He was just a spirit, but not actually man. Uh, others in the Gnostic camp thought that Jesus, the eternal son of, or I should say, the, the eternal son of God, kind of hijacked the body of this man named Jesus at his baptism, and then he accomplished his purposes, but that the eternal son of God never assumed human nature himself, because it would just be too below God to do such a thing. And so I think Paul intentionally chooses these terms to exalt Jesus above the rest of humanity while still affirming his very real connection and uh, yeah, connection to humanity. So on the one hand, Jesus is the image of God. And immediately, that should make us think of Genesis 1, that God made man in his image. So there is a, an immediate link between us as human beings made in the image of God and the man, Jesus Christ. He really is one of us. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus really is a man. And the only, not only that, but he is the ideal man. He is the second Adam who perfectly images God as a man. And yet, even as this phrase subtly whispers of Jesus's uh, identification with us in our humanity. It shouts of Jesus's unity with God in his divine nature. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus is able to perfectly image God for one simple reason. He is God. He's one with the Father. And so first, as we think about how God makes himself known, God reveals himself first through creation. That's Romans 1, Psalm 19. Uh, but then God goes even farther than just making himself known through that which he's created. But then he speaks by his word through the prophets. But then in the most unfathomable act of God's mercy, he not only speaks to us, but he becomes like us. As Hebrews 1 gloriously begins in verses 1 to 3, it says, Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And the idea is not merely that he gave Jesus the words to speak like he gave the prophets words to speak, but that Christ in his very person, in his coming, is the revelation of God to man. The incarnation is the ultimate act of God's self-disclosure to man, his revelation to us. The infinite, eternal Son of God unites himself to human nature so that he can make himself known to create his creatures in a way that we can understand. And this is the same point that's made in John, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Why does John call Jesus the Word? Because the Father speaks by his Son and reveals himself to us by his Son. And then you get down to verse 14 in John 1. And it says, And the Word became flesh and and dwelt among us. And he goes on, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Christ has made him known. So because Jesus shares the divine essence with the Father, he is able to faithfully and perfectly image the Father. And yet because Jesus is truly human, he is able to reveal him to us as humans in a way that we can understand as finite creatures. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so Jesus is both like us and yet utterly distinct from us. Very similarly, Paul says that he is the firstborn of all creation. And I think Paul uses this term for the same reason as he uses the the term image of God. He maintains Jesus' real connection to us as our older brother, as amazing as that is. And yet, he's not just like us. He is the firstborn. And if we understand ancient culture and the idea of primogeniture, then it would be clear to us that Paul's point is not about time, it's not about sequence of events, but it's about priority, prestige, status, rank. The firstborn has the priority as the heir, the first in status and prestige, the one who chiefly represents the father, who governs the family estate, And that's the same thing we see in Hebrews 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Same exact message being set forth in Hebrews 1. And so I think Paul is emphasizing the preeminence of Christ in creation, and yet doing it in such a way to safeguard his humanity that he is still one of us his genuine identification with us. And especially because as you go on, you see that Gnosticism took root in Colossae. The the seeds were already germinating there in Colossae. Uh, And I'll just throw in a couple other verses. You can see these emphases in our passage, which I won't deal with them later. Uh, Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He really is God. But then in verse 22, he says, And now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. That's about as earthy as you can, his body of flesh by his death. Paul wants to be sure that you know he came as a man. He came with a human body and a human nature. And so I think these phrases are specifically chosen to hold together Christ's unity and oneness with the Father and his very real identification with us. He's both like us in that he came as a man, but he's utterly unlike us in that he came from God. And thus he stands above the rest of creation. And Paul labors to make sure that we don't misunderstand him by simply saying, like, oh, he's the first created being. No, Jesus is not a created being at all. Rather, he continues, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He 
created all things from tiny little microorganisms indetectable to the human eye to colossal stars that dwarf our planet by the order of millions. He created it all. To put it in perspective, our planet seems big. I mean, California seems big to me. The ocean seems big to me. Mount Shasta seems big to me. You could fit a million Earths inside of the sun. And so you think, wow, the sun must be really, really big then. But you could fit a billion suns in the biggest known star. And even that star, as incredibly, unfathomably huge as it is, is just a tiny little speck in the galaxy that our Lord made by the word of his power. And meanwhile, on the other side of the creative spectrum, the DNA of a single cell contains so much information that if you were to represent it print in printed words with just the first letter of each base, it would require 1.5 million pages of text. He created all things in heaven and on earth. And that's just the visible realm. Paul continues about the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. There's a whole other realm of spiritual realities that we cannot observe or measure by scientific means. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And it wasn't hard for him. This wasn't a strenuous task. He didn't have to labor over it and make plans. He spoke and it was order beauty, and function flow from the mouth of Christ. And not only are all things created by him, but he sustains all things. Verse 17 says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. God did not merely set the world in motion and then leave it to itself to go its own way, but rather he sustains all things actively by the work of his providence. And I certainly am not the one who's going to do it justice, but I think Paul wants us to feel something of Christ's absolute power and authority over all things. And now we come back to this question, well, why? Why does our triune God do this? What is God's intended purpose in creating such a big and yet such a complex world? Well, we're not left wondering because he tells us. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The world and all that exists, exists for one ultimate purpose. The glory of Christ being set on display. Young person. If you're struggling with your identity and value, please hear me. You were not created to be popular. You were not created to be the athlete. You were not created to be the funny person or the smart kid or the pretty girl or the popular kid or any other thing that you might be tempted to find your value and your identity in. You were created for him. Moms. You were not created fundamentally to be a mom. You were created for him. That is the base and the foundation of your identity. Career person, you were not created fundamentally to be an engineer or a police officer or a teacher or a nurse or a pastor. You were created for Christ. 
We are not meant to find our identity and value in the things of this world and what we do. We are made to find our identity in knowing him, being known by him, and worshiping him as our creator, and then, even more glorious, our redeemer. That's why we exist, for one purpose. It's for him. However, the preeminence of Christ is not only displayed in in creation, but also in his work of redemption. And this brings us to the second point, the preeminence of Christ in redemption. So verse 18 continues, uh, and we have a shift here. It pivots into not just the created world, but now how he's uh, restoring the world. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I think the easiest way to understand what Christ is doing in the work of redemption is simply to look at the final result, to look at the end. Uh, So I'm going to read Revelation 21, uh, and you can just soak in it and listen along if you'd like. But Revelation 21, this is the end of all things. This is the final stop on the redemptive bus. This is our final destination. Revelation 21, verses 1 uh, and following. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither pain, sorry, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is what Christ is doing. That's the final stop. He's reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Christ is going to purge the world of all sin, of all evil, of all pain, no, no death, no mourning, no crying, no sin, no struggle, the restoration of all that is good and beautiful and right, and the removal of all that is bad and wrong and ugly. And now listen closely. Christ is the beginning of that new creation. When Paul says here in Colossians 1 that Christ is the beginning, he's not talking about Genesis 1. He's talking about Matthew 28. When Christ rose from the dead, Christ inaugurated not merely a new covenant, which he he did, but a new creation. And Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits of that harvest, the first fruits of the new creation. And surprising as it might be, the light of the new creation of Revelation 21 is already dawning. And you might say, well, how can that be? 
Don't you read the news headlines? Don't you know that we have loved ones dying? We're surrounded by sin. We're surrounded by sickness and death in this world. How can you say the light of this glorious, in Revelation 21, this glorious new creation is already dawning on us? And I can say that because Christ is the head of the church. And all who are gathered into the church are part of his body. They have been brought into union with the one who has already defeated death and sin and darkness. And such is our union to Christ that his death was our death. And his resurrection is our resurrection. And we have new resurrection life in him. And this is the reality that Paul unpacks in Romans 6, like it's just Christianity 101. Like, of course, don't you know this? Uh, in Romans 6, Paul says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When one, when one is born again, Christ sends his spirit into the hearts of his people so that they might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it even more forcefully. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And this is true for each and every person who has been genuinely gathered in and is part of Christ's church. The beginning of the new creation starts not in Revelation 21, but in the hearts of his people as the Spirit gives new life. And yet, obviously, we live in a fallen world that's still dominated by sin and death and darkness. And this is why we say we live in the already, not yet. On one hand, Christ has already defeated sin and darkness. We already have forgiveness. We've already been reconciled to God. We already have new life in the Spirit. We are a new creation in Christ. We have new affections, new desires, new ambitions. And yet, sin and corruption still abounds. And if we're honest, not only out there, but even in our own hearts. We carry around, as Paul says, this body of death. Christ hasn't brought his work of redemption to fulfillment. Even in us, it's true. But you know what has happened? It's begun. And Christ is the beginning. And if you're in Christ, then you have a new beginning with new life in him. And where has that begun? In the church, among God's redeemed people. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And now we come back to this same question. Well, why bother? Why bother with redeeming a creation that's in sin and rebellion against him, why not just demolish the world and start afresh? He could do that. It wouldn't be wrong of him. It wouldn't be unjust. And even more so, why would God do it in such a way that would require so much from him? 
Why redeem a world that would obligate Christ to come and suffer and die under the wrath of God? Why would he willingly and voluntarily obligate so much upon himself? And again, he tells us, verse 18b, that in everything, creation, redemption, everything that exists so that Christ might be preeminent. All creation, all redemption has one purpose. It's for Christ and his preeminence being set on display. And it's humbling that even our salvation is not about us being saved, ultimately. It's about Christ being glorified. Listen to how it's stated in Ephesians 1.5. It says, In love, he being God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us in the beloved. To be sure, this is something God did in love. It was his good pleasure to save sinners. He delighted in doing it. We are the objects of his affection. And yet it's also clear that our adoption was unto something else. Our salvation was to the praise of his glorious grace. In fact, three times in Ephesians 1 alone, Paul says that we were saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Whether we instinctively like it or not, our salvation is a means to a greater end of Christ being displayed as preeminent, his glory and his grace being set on display. From creation to consummation, the drama of human history is about one thing, the glory of Christ. And we see here in Colossians 1 that the place wherein the preeminence and the glory of Christ is most chiefly set on display is in his cross. Why did he do it this way? Well, he goes on in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How does he do that? How does he reconcile the world to himself? By the blood of his cross. How does Christ actually accomplish this cosmic reconciliation where he sets all things right, where he makes all things beautiful and good again? Not by coming first and killing his enemies, but by voluntarily being killed by his enemies. We might be able to conceive of a story where the hero comes and dies at the hands of his enemies, but for his friends. We know stories like that. But can we even conceive of a story where the hero comes and dies at the hands of his enemies and for those enemies? What manner of love is this? Unless we think that just the enemies of God are those, you know, godless unbelievers out there, Paul immediately reminds us as he continues, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Whether you were saved at a young age or whether you were saved later in life, this is a universal statement concerning each and every one of us. We were at one point alienated from God, hostile towards God, doing evil deeds. And perhaps you're not a follower of Christ this morning, and this is still your position towards God. But you might think, I'm not hostile towards God. I'm not opposed to God. I just don't believe him. I'm just apathetic towards God. But let me ask you this. How does the very idea of God creating all things for his glory make you feel? How does it feel to know that God is motivated by his own glory? That you and even humanity in general are not uppermost in God's affections, purposes, and plans, but that he was. Does that bother you? Does it irk you that God should be motivated by his own glory? Would it seem more fitting to you if an appropriate, if God's ultimate purposes and plans was merely to display how great his love was for humanity? By nature, we want a God who esteems not his worth, but our worth as the ultimate motivation for all things. We want to be the reason for all things. We want all of God's plans and purposes to center around us, not him. And the God-centeredness of God is an affront to our human pride. And the fact that we as the creature are offended that God, the creator, should work all things for himself and that we are not the center of all creation, that we are not the center of redemption, but that Christ is, is a reflection of the fact that by nature we're at enmity with God, that we're hostile towards God, and we're hostile towards God being God and asserting his right to be God and acting like God. We want to be the center of the universe. And that's true for the unbeliever, and that is true often even in our own hearts as believers. There are remnants of rebellion and hostility that are opposed to God's assertion of his own prerogative as the divine being, the one who actually does have infinite worth and value, the one who's worthy of the world and all things being orchestrated through him and for him. And those are little remnants of rebellion that need to be brought into submission to God and to see that, not that it's just an unwilling submission, but it's good, it's beautiful, and it's right that God should be the center of the world. In the same way, you might think, I'm not doing evil deeds, but I would ask, what is the measure by which you establish that claim? Is it because you don't kill people and steal things? and lie every day, well, that's fine and good, but understand that you weren't created not to do bad things. You were created for Christ, that in you and through you, he might be glorified. So do you live each and every day with a conscientious view towards Christ being glorified in everything you say, think, and do? 
Understand that if the glory of Christ isn't the thing that consciously motivates your actions, something else is. And whatever that thing is, is an idol which occupies the place of preeminence that only Christ should have. A very moral and upright life can be nothing more than a continual seething expression of idolatry and pride. It's not just what you do, but why you do it and how you do it. We were created for him in all that we are. We just don't grasp how deep and how dark our rebellion is against our creator. And yet, the precise place wherein the glory of Christ is most displayed is that Christ lays down his life and loved us in the midst of all of that, with the darkest stains of our sin, the ugliest acts of our idolatry, and the most high-handed declarations of defiance before us, he pursued us. And he reconciled us to himself at the cross. And it's by means of the cross, that those who were once guilty and defiled and condemned before God are made to be holy and blameless and above reproach before God. What a wonder of his grace. And this is why the cross is the place wherein the preeminence of Christ is most displayed and most clearly seen. It's the place where the love of Christ is most vividly set forth as he willingly stands in the stead of sinners. It's where the righteousness of Christ is set forth as he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us. And God the Father sets no, nothing aside that justice might be satisfied. It's where the faithfulness of Christ is displayed as he makes good on all the covenant promises to his people throughout all throughout all history. It's where the power of Christ is set forth as he defeats sin and death and darkness once and for all. It's at the cross where all the attributes of God are most richly set forth before our eyes. And this is why the cross is and will forever be the center and the focal point of all of human history. For endless ages to come, when we forget so much of this life below, the thing that we'll still be singing about is the Lamb upon the throne. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. We will forever sing about and worship Christ, because of the cross and what he accomplished in the cross. And let me just close with a couple brief points of application. No matter who you are or what your life has looked like or what it will look like, understand that your life is not a meaningless accident. You were created not just with purpose, but you were created for the highest and the most noble purpose to glorify God as one made in his image. And if you are not a believer today, understand that you have not lived up 
to that calling. You have not set forth the glory of Christ in the way that you related to him. You have made other things preeminent in your heart and affections. You have disregarded the Christ that you were created to worship. And yet this same Christ is the one who came and suffered for the very people who rejected his kingship, dying at the hands of his enemies and for his enemies, offering forgiveness and reconciliation to all who trust in him. What a gracious king. Why wouldn't this one be worthy of our devotion and affection more so than any other thing? Why would he not be the center of the universe? Understand that Christ came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And those who are willing to acknowledge themselves to be so and to entrust themselves to him will find in Christ an all-sufficient Savior who is more than able to wash away the deepest and darkest stains of your sin. And believers, if the ultimate purpose of God in all things is that Christ might be preeminent, what does that mean for your life? What does that mean for your time, your money, your thought life? All that we should be that we do should be aimed at one all-encompassing purpose. What? That Christ might be preeminent. Everything is consecrated to Christ as king. The way that you work, the way that you change diapers, the way that you do the dishes, the way that you rest, the way that you enjoy earthly blessings, all of it is aimed at one thing, the glory of Christ. Is that how you think? Is that how you work through your day and through your life? Because it ought to be. High schooler, understand that Christianity is not some superficial list of do's and don'ts. The thing that makes you a Christian, if you are a Christian, is not that you don't drink and smoke and cuss and some of your friends at school do. The thing that distinguishes you as a Christian is that you recognize that you exist for one purpose, for him. That all of your life, all of your thoughts, all of your affections, all of who you are is for him. You're created for him. You are redeemed for him. Therefore, you are to live for him. Friends, if Christ is and will forever be the preeminent one, let us worship him as such. Let us declare it with our mouth. Let us revel in it in our hearts and let us live it out with the totality of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the plan of salvation that Christ did come. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took upon himself the the form of a a man, of a servant. And he was uh, born in in the lowliness and the likeness of man. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? That at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. 
Lord, may that be the confession of each and every one of our hearts, uh, not only with our mouth, but with our lives. May we uh, structure and think about, govern, order our lives in such a way to show one thing, that Christ would be preeminent in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.